The corruption of the three cops involved in this case gets exposed this episode, y'all. Grab your popcorn, because the time has come. So Sean is meeting with Jose De La Rosa, who is the co-founder and CEO of Guardian Healthcare. During this chat, Sean talks about how at his 20th year in prison, he started to reflect on how he had spent more time in prison than out since he went in at the age of 19. Imagine that for a moment. Imagine spending half your life in prison and it's for a crime you didn't even commit jose says that when watching sean be taken from the paddy wagon sarah and robinson were two faces he could never forget because back in 1991 sarah had tied him up with the rope and robinson always had this smile on his face So we're going to get into Jose's story for a bit. So Jose came from the Dominican Republic in 1988, the year of my birth, and settled in Boston around 1989. He started out as a baseball player, which he says is a typical Dominican thing, and was scouted by a team that brought him to the U.S., Unfortunately, that career didn't last, so he found work at Logan Airport as one of the guys with the light sticks that parks the plane. There was no technical name for it, so we're just going to call it the people with the glow sticks. But it was all good for him until September the 26th, 1991. He gets home, parks in front of his apartment, and when he gets out, a gun gets pointed at his head. It was two men wearing normal clothes, one of which was Walter Robinson, and was told to hand over his keys. Thinking he was in the middle of being robbed, he told him he had $40 in his pocket, and it was at that moment that the men flashed their badges, showing that they were police. The other officer asked where he lived, and Jose told him, All of this is screaming so many violations. But they took his keys, put the gun away, and led him to his apartment. The officer opened the door, which startled Jose's girlfriend, who had no idea what was going on. One of them grabbed him by the shirt and sat him in a chair and told him that they're going to find what they're looking for. He then proceeds to tie his hands behind his back with the rope. His girlfriend is sitting there crying while the other officer ransacks the apartment. He comes back and asks where the stuff is. And Jose, afraid, has no idea what they're talking about. They stand him up and take him out to their car. Now, Jose is thinking that they're going to kill him. They're going to kill him and they're going to dump his body somewhere and no one's going to know anything about it. But... They take him to District 5 station. Now, this clip is going to be a bit longer and it's going to have some pauses in between. But I thought it was important to hear directly from the reporter, Dick Lear, 
who was a former team member of the famous spotlight group at the Boston Globe about their exposure of the corruption of a Sarah Robinson and Brazel. In 1995, 96, 97, we spent a fair amount of time looking at the Boston Police Department and its practices. We started hearing more about Area E, and in particular, Walter Robinson, Kenny Asser, his partner, and other officers there, John Brazel. What we studied was their search warrants. They were a very active, high-volume unit uh, Robinson, Sarah, and Brazel in terms of uh, drug bus. Before you execute a drug bust, you have to get a judge to sign off that you have, you know, to override the privacy rights with, a, with an authorized search warrant. And most search warrants to be authorized have to be based on some evidence and credibility. And what we were able to show by studying their practices was they relied almost exclusively on a single informant for all of their search warrants. For 1992, for example, we studied 47 busts that they did relying on a single informant. This was the mother load of underworld informants, uh, God's gift to um, law enforcement, apparently. And we're talking about busts that made it all the more remarkable that weren't in just West Roxbury or in Area E, but were all over the city. It just defies credibility that there'd be a single someone in the drug world who would know about things going on in Charlestown, in Southie. You might know something going on in your neighborhood um, if you're plugged in. It was beyond belief. After cops execute a search warrant, they have to file a return, which is paperwork that codifies it, what they seized, what they found. And again, about Robinson and Sarah and Brazel. Only in 20% of their busts did they record that they seized money with the drugs. In comparison, the police in Dorchester found money 67% of the time, and Roxbury found money 66% of the time, according to the piece about the West Roxbury Trio, as they were called. Dick says, this is a laugh out loud moment because money and drugs go hand in hand. So if you find drugs, you're gonna find money, yet... They never seemed to find money. In fact, they found money 21% of the time. So it's back to 1991 and at Area E5, also known as District 5 Station, and the officers want Jose to give them someone bigger that they can arrest. He tells them he doesn't know anyone who deals drugs, who can deliver what they want. Angry, the shorter of the officers, who I believe is Robinson, says since he won't help them, this is what they're going to do. And this is what is going to happen to him. He then proceeds to go over to a locker slash mailbox kind of thing, pulls out a bag of cocaine and says that bag 
will be in his court tomorrow when they take him in. Panicked and terrified about what these men are saying, he has an accident and breaks down. They put him in a cell for the night and in the morning his court-appointed lawyer comes in and tells him that he's being charged with trafficking of cocaine, which is a mandatory 15-year sentence. The judge asks who is behind the case and his lawyer doesn't answer but says he doesn't have a record. Please go easy on him. So I'm kind of side-eyeing his attorney real hard and I can't wait to find out who it is. His bail gets set at $2,500, which his girlfriend had, and he gets to go home. He arrives back home and sees the damage done by the cops. He immediately goes for his jacket that he had $2,300 stashed in to buy a car. And when he finds it, the money is gone. Robinson and Sarah stole the money. So we have S. Theodore Merritt, wondering absolutely what the S stands for, and he is the former assistant U.S. attorney for the District of Massachusetts, and he says, When I picked up my copy of the Boston Globe and there was a spotlight series on uh, detectives Walter Robinson and detectives Kenneth Sarah, that was quite quite eye-opening to us. And then we can start to use the investigative tools that we have to uh, sometimes go a lot deeper than, than the media can. And we started pulling all the warrants that uh, Robinson and Asara had written and executed uh, over the past few years. And from there, starting with the paper, we started actually going out and knocking on doors and talking to people and uh, trying to put some meat on, on the paper. I was working at the airport. I'm leaving work, go to the post office, and there's this huge, tall guy, and he goes, are you Jose De La Rosa? Yeah, I'm Jose, what's going on? As well, I'm Detective Diovidio. I'm like, gosh, here we go again. Um, you had uh, an incident back in 1991, and you know I want to talk to you about that. And I said, sir, I'm, I'm done with that. I, I don't want to talk about this anymore. I mean, this is this is gone. This part. I said, no, 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 no. I, I want you to understand that I'm on your side on this time. I mean, I'm doing an investigation, and I need your help. I need you to help me with this. And I said, you know what? If, if you're if you're if you're real, if this is true, what you're talking about, I. I I'm more than willing to help you because I mean, obviously, this, this is a big deal in my life. I mean, these people turn me upside down. And I, and I need, you know, to see what, you know, what can be done. The U.S. Attorney's Office used statutory immunity to flip John Brazel, who cut a deal and became a cooperating witness. Brazel testified that he had some real regrets about being involved in the scheme. And he confirmed that they were fabricating witnesses, searches, and they had it down to a routine. Robinson would tell Brazel to write down the name of the last person he arrested as the witness for the phony warrant. He would use the warrant to go in and seize thousands and thousands of dollars. And instead of turning it in as they are supposed to do, they kept it for themselves. At some point, they lost track because they would sometimes keep all of it, would turn in some of it, 
or sometimes all of it. A four-year scheme over 50 search warrants to the tune of over $250,000 was found in their possessions. Dick tells us that part of the investigation also included drugs that they were allegedly putting back onto the street and gaining profit from that as well. In 1997, they pleaded guilty to conspiracy, theft, intimidation of witnesses, and falsifying informants. McNeely says nobody is happy about it. It makes everyone look bad and that he wouldn't have any idea of what they were doing. Dick tells us there is a culture of lying and cover-up that has affected police departments everywhere. That even if you see wrongdoing, you are supposed to keep quiet. Merritt says they were ready for a trial and the defendants were interested in a plea deal. They agreed to a three-year term for theft and $100,000 each in restitution. Robinson resigned and Asera was suspended. You mean these men weren't fired immediately? Wow. Jose was so excited when he saw the article titled Badge of Shame about Robinson and Asera. They were finally going to jail after what they made him go through. They had the power to put him away. Who would have known and who was going to believe him? How sad that a badge that took someone a couple months to obtain somehow makes them more trustworthy than someone else. Here, these three men were knee-deep in corruption, and they would have been believed, and I guarantee all of their cases from that time period weren't looked at, and the people weren't released. Why? Because our system doesn't do that. Our system is too far clouded by corruption in all areas of it and would rather protect the corruption than work to clean itself up. In fact, an article says it may only hurt the five cases. Five cases. No, any case with their fingerprints on it is absolutely tainted and it needs to be thrown out, period. They didn't even show up in court for Jose's case in 1991, yet the charges weren't formally dropped until 1997. In 1998, he sues the city of Boston and was awarded $62,500. Sean tells him he was sorry for what happened, but he was glad that he didn't have to spend that time in jail. Two men connected by the same corrupt cops. One man got to go free and another spent 22 years in prison. The investigation into Robinson and Asera had given Sean a little hope that they would reinvestigate his case and that he would get to go home. September the 29th, 1998, they have their first motion for a new trial. Duncan and Zelkin argue that Robinson and Asera were corrupt and had massive bodies of evidence of them being habitual liars in their official duties and operated that way. Duncan argued that they influenced the testimony of Rosa, 
which we know they did. Judge McDaniel denied the evidentiary hearing and the motion hearing. The same black judge from his trials who worked to make sure the jury convicted him was hell-bent on keeping him there. Fudge, unicorn, corndog, kangaroo, McDaniel is all I have to say. McNeely claims what Sarah and Robinson did had nothing to do with the Mulligan case and that you couldn't find a cleaner case. To which I say, give me a few minutes with some case files and I promise you I'll find a cleaner case. You cannot tell me that there is not a cleaner case than this because there absolutely is. I'll find a case so clean you can hear the squeak when you run your finger across the paper. Now, I want to see McNeely's cases because I got some serious questions. After the hearing, Sean is transferred to Shirley Complex in 1999, deemed the Supermax. Describing the conditions, he says, you are in your cell for 21 hours a day. One hour out in the morning, one hour in the afternoon, and one hour at night. Complete and utter torture to put people through this. This is a terrible fact in our criminal justice system, the way that we treat prisoners. I understand that people commit heinous crimes, but what we do to them is not right. And I can only hope that one day our children and our children's children will work to fix the conditions that we make people go through in prison. Next, we meet Elaine Murphy. She had been living in Montreal at the time when some friends visited and had a copy of the Boston Globe with them. She looked at it, not seeing that paper in a while since moving, and noticed the article about Sean. She was stunned because she knew Sean and knew he wasn't a killer. In 1983, when Sean was nine, he attended Mitchell School with her son, and they were friends. He was the only black kid in the class and had been bussed in from a program called METCO. It was a voluntary school integration program, and kids were selected to be part of the program and sent to suburban schools throughout Boston for a better chance education. Sean's mom was excited for the program because she felt she hadn't gotten the best education growing up, so she wanted better for him. The program included host families that lived in the neighborhood, and Mark Murphy and his mother Elaine became his host family. Sean goes to visit Elaine and Mark in 2018 while awaiting his fourth trial. Mark and Sean remember being the troublemakers of the class and how their teacher, who looked like Sandra Bullock, used to give them stickers and prizes, which made them behave. She truly did look like Sandra Bullock, and I love me some Sandy. Mark tells Sean's sister that they were shocked when they found out and went to visit him as soon as they could get out there. Elaine was a writer and wanted to help Sean, so she wrote an op-ed that appeared in The Globe about it. 
Sean goes to visit the grave of his older brother, Joseph, who passed away in 1983. He was 12, 13 around the time, and he had gone over to a friend's house to the pool, and he jumped in, but he didn't come back up. They took him to the hospital and called his mother, and they said that they would come get her because she didn't have transportation. She learned on the way to the hospital that he had passed. It was this event, the death of her firstborn son, that caused her to turn to drugs in order to escape her reality that her son was gone. After graduating from high school, Sean started to hang out more and that's when he became exposed to the neighborhood and everything going on in it. David says that it was the people that he was hanging out with that got him started in selling drugs. Sean was nowhere near Kingpin but he was doing what he could. Sean reflects that if his older brother had lived, he probably wouldn't have gone down that path because he would have set him straight. You see, the older male figure typically takes on those tough choices to avoid the younger one from going through it. They, in a sense, sacrifice themselves for the younger sibling or child, Without the presence of a male figure with his father gone, it appears that he had left the family and then his brother passing away at such a young age, there was no one there to help guide Sean. His uncle should have been that person, but he wasn't. But truly, if you think about it, With the death of his older brother being the catalyst for Sean's mother using drugs to cope, one would have to question whether or not, if he had never passed away, if any of this would have ever happened. Sean would have never been hanging out with other kids that got him known to police officers. None of this would have happened. In 2003, Sean found out that he could do post-conviction relief by himself using Rule 30, but he would have to fire his attorneys for ineffective assistance of counsel. This troubled Sean because he knew Duncan and Zelkin had his best interests at heart. They cared for him and they had a great relationship. He wrote to Elaine expressing how scared and overwhelmed he was with everything. He was trying hard to fight getting entrenched in the prison culture. In 2003, he saw Rosemary on the news for the Sean Drumgold case. Drumgold had spent nearly 15 years behind bars for the shooting death of a 12-year-old in 1988. Rosemary was seeking a new trial. The first couple were denied before the Boston Globe started to do a story on all of the witnesses who were coming forward and recanting. Dick Lear and the Spotlight team were amazing and reported that Drumgold was nowhere near the area at the time of the shooting and was not a gang member, just a street level drug dealer. It was the media's attention that helped transform the case. 
she was able to find a witness who sat down and told her that he never saw Sean do it. He tells her that the cops paid him to say it and fed him information about the crime that he didn't know. At the time, he was homeless and sleeping on someone's couch when a detective came by and said they would put him up in a hotel with free room service. At the trial, Alyssa Graham, Sean's friend, said that a detective warned her not to testify on Sean's behalf. That she had a warrant and that she would be arrested as soon as she stepped off the stand. Sean went free 14 years after his conviction. At the press conference after he walks out, he says... I feel great. This is a great day for me and my family. It's extraordinary. This is something that I've been hoping for all my life. The district attorney's office needs to be held accountable. The people who investigated it need to be, need to be held accountable. The Boston police need to be held accountable. If we don't hold those, those organizations accountable, this will happen again. After seeing this press conference, Sean wrote her a letter telling her who he was, what he was accused of, and how many trials he had. Rosemary says that it was something about the letter. She can't explain what it is, but just something about it that she knew she had to meet him. She was super busy at the time and told him she wouldn't be able to even look at the case for 18 months. And Sean said he would wait. Even when she said that just looking at the case didn't guarantee that she would take it on, he says that he would wait. He told her he wouldn't bother her or call her, that he would just wait. And that's what he did. Rosemary grew up in Brighton with her mom and sisters. She went to a private all-girls Catholic high school. She worked in the summer and after school to pay tuition. They didn't know no one else did that, but her mom told them to do it, so... They did it. They lived in a housing project, which included drugs being dealt and women who supported their families by way of prostitution. Her father wasn't around, but her mom always told her girls that being successful is the best revenge. So they all put themselves through high school, college, and law school for Rosemary so they could give back. Most of the clients she takes in are from poor, underdeveloped socioeconomic settings. I get called out to an attorney visit. When I walked into the room, Rosemary demanded uh, attention, and um, she wasn't nobody to play with. Um, she, like she was a, a, a straight shooter. She, you know, caught it as she saw it, um, and she, it's, it's, it's like she was fearless. I remember him coming in, he was sweating, he was nervous, um, and shook my hand and started studying. He's not bragging about it, he's not, he's, he's, in, he's saying he didn't do it, um, that this was a rush to judgment, that all the same sorts of things that I was hearing from Sean Drungle. She said, basically, and I'm paraphrasing, you, you, you got over one, one hurdle, which was getting me here. Now I need you to tell me, um, like, why you? And, like, I had never had anybody to, to ask that question. 
Um, and like the, the, the truth of the matter, as it's my position is because I was young, I was black, and I admitted being there. And she says, all right, I, I, can, I, I can go with that. In October 2004, Rosemary takes his case. When it comes to cases, Rosemary likes to take it like a puzzle that needs to be put together. First up in that is the timeline. She wants to know what happened before the crime, detailed timeline of the night, and then be able to visually picture what the police did in terms of the investigation. Two different ideas came forward in the beginning. One was an investigation into the corruption, and the other was investigating Mulligan as a dirty cop. Rosemary believed she could link Mulligan to the activities that Robinson, Acer, and Brazel were involved in. That they wanted to make sure the case ended quickly, conviction happened efficiently, and that the case would withstand anything so that they wouldn't get exposed and indicted. And that is how we end. In fact, we end on a memorial outside of Area E5 for John Mulligan. I cannot wait to get into next week's episode about John Mulligan and all of his activities. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. Thank you so much for tuning in again, and I will see you in the next one. Bye.